Well, here we are. And we are probably thinking about Taylor Swift, or at the very least, we have lots of feelings about Taylor Swift. Always true. (laughs) This is Well, Here We Are, a weekly podcast which explores pop culture, the humanities, and how they matter for our daily lives, distilled into lists of three-ish things. Today, we are talking the men of Pride and Prejudice. I have a list of three characters, Suzanne has a list of three, and together, they make a list of five. I'm Hannah. And I'm Suzanne. One of the reasons we wanted to talk about Pride and Prejudice now is that Suzanne and I have both recently moved back home. Living with our mothers in our 30s. And the cats. And the cats. And the dogs. And we've been reunited with our Jane Austen books. And we feel that Pride and Prejudice is like a warm cup of tea and a big fuzzy blanket. It's so comforting when other things get really hard. I do have to say that my... So all three of my mom's cats are named after Pride and Prejudice characters, and it has really made me question my love for certain characters. (laughs) Because Lizzie just will, like, not leave me alone. And I'm like, do I hate Elizabeth Bennet? But I think it's just the cats. What are the other two? Jane and Bingley, which I have issues with because Lizzie is the oldest, Jane is the middle cat, and Bingley is the youngest, which factually is not true in Pride and Prejudice, but I've made my peace with that. Uh, Suzanne, you recently sent me a BBC article by Eloise Wood, who, which uh, describes the comfort and narratives of resiliency in Jane Austen works. Um, we'll link that article in the episode description. In it, I thought it was really interesting because Wood quotes a lot of Jane Austen fans and scholars in this discussion of what makes... Austin's works really speak to this moment that we're in. And just in case you're listening to this more than God, I hope one year from when we're recording it, we're talking about these unprecedented times, the COVID times. I thought it'd be good just before launching into our main conversation for us both to speak to why Jane Austen for us here and now in light of this general state of everything. One thing that really jumped out to me in this rereading and that would discusses in her article is this feeling of just being trapped at home and the feeling of waiting that is Mm -hmm. so prevalent in all of Jane Austen's works that I can identify with a lot more than I used to be able to that especially in Pride and Prejudice when we see Jane can't just go visit Mr. Bingley whenever she wants to she has to wait for Caroline to call on her and when Lizzie wants to go do she's getting ready to go to the lakes but she has a month at home. She has nothing to fill that time. And there's a sense of just like four weeks pass with her nothing to think about. It gets to be almost oppressive in the sense of just like just sitting at home all the time. I, I think that we felt that especially, or I can't speak for you, but I definitely felt that especially when we were working on our dissertations and we were in lockdown. That kind of oppressive waiting was even harder in certain respects because everything else came to this screeching halt in our lives and we still had to drum up this well of efficiency and productivity. You see that in Pride and Prejudice where there's this long line of waiting and yet they still have to go about the business of tending to their home. They still 
have to do those things that educated ladies need to spend their time doing and how at times that like not that day to day just feels so meaningless, but you have to find a way to force yourself to do it. And every time in Pride and Prejudice, one of the characters even wants to physically leave their home, specifically her home, because men can do whatever they want. Whenever they go to Meriton, they have to be visiting their Aunt Phillips. When Elizabeth goes to visit Jane, they're so shocked that she walked three miles to Netherfield. A person that a woman leaving her home is something that requires motive. Related to that, the thing that this article touches on. The article uses the phrase low-level psychological stress, that all of these characters are just constantly in a state of low-level psychological stress, and they have, they have no way of getting themselves out of it at times. They have these problems. They have these obstacles. They know what needs to happen in order to fix them, and they can't make the moves because they don't have any agency. They have no agency to fix them. And I have definitely felt that way in this time of at my lowest, where I'm in at like my mentally lowest place, knowing the things that I usually call on to get me through that time and not having access to those resources. And I think both because of this article, but also just because of the times we're living in, I feel like I saw that throughout the narrative a lot more than I ever have in the past. But what... It's also true about a lot of Austin's works is that these characters, even when terrible things are happening to them, that they have absolutely no control over, they still find ways to get through the day. And that it's, it's, comforting, it's comforting to read. I agree, 100%. Uh, the article also, I just want to mention this, the article also mentions that in, uh, in World War I, actually, soldiers suffering from PTSD or who, who were rehabilitating were often prescribed Jane Austen's works as a way to mentally bring them together and to bring them focus and comfort in their lives. It made me think, and this is just something I want to say kind of at the beginning of our episode, that if um, if you are male identifying and you think that this book isn't for you because it was written by a woman and the majority of the characters are women, I would urge you to consider why you think that that is not interesting to you, a man. And that's all I'm <laughs> going to say about that. Yeah, I could absolutely see why like the language the pace of the writing, the pace of the action would bring comfort. And I, I, yeah, I love that part of the article too. Speaking of men, what we're really going to talk about today is the men of Pride and Prejudice, the book. We are not talking about the movies. We are not talking about Colin Firth, even though we probably will talk about Colin Firth. I'm not made of stone. We're not going to get into the 1995 versus 2005. That's how friends and relationships are lost. We're not, we're not interested. Uh, one of the themes that Pride and Prejudice returns to is an exploration of what it truly means to be a gentleman and what it truly means to be a lady. And that theme is clearest when we're looking at, at the book and, and not the movies, uh, specifically the male characters in the book. So first, I'm going to talk about the types of men you meet in Pride and Prejudice, which I think is helpful because these character archetypes, ones that... Uh, Jane, and we're probably going to call her Jane because we're friends, Jane Austen, returns to in a lot of her books. I I like to think of Pride and Prejudice as kind of a gateway drug to other Austen novels in that I think most people encounter Pride and Prejudice first, and then they decide whether they want to continue with more of her works or decide that maybe this isn't for them. Then Suzanne is going to briefly touch on how 
these male archetypes influence film, television, and literature, and then we're going to get into our list of three-ish things. I'm going to discuss three men that I believe are the best written characters, and Suzanne is going to talk about the three that she's had the most in- intense-ish uh, response to in this reread. I don't really know how to categorize, how to categorize. What my list of three-ish things is, but there there will be It's okay, men. We'll, we'll get into it. <laughs> in the Venn diagram between our two conversations, there is one overlapping man, and if you guessed Mr. Collins, you'll have to wait and see if you're right. Okay, as I mentioned, this is a great entry-level Austen book in part because most of the character archetypes that we see in her other works are included in Pride and Prejudice. So if you get to know these men really well, we're going to meet them all again. So first we have the hero, this misunderstood, brooding, strong and silent type who is going to go to any lengths to help or save or be with the woman he loves, who is our heroine. The rake is a charming, attractive, charismatic man. He's usually pretty good at dancing. He sometimes has like-minded opinions and interests that initially attract our heroine before she finds out that he's just yanking her around. And the hero and the rake are usually foils. So Darcy and Wickham in this case, Wickham kind of serves to demonstrate how Darcy has been misunderstood and how Darcy's actually a loving, honorable man. And we may not know that until we find out his relationship with Wickham. We also get a best friend, usually, who is also charming, but his warmth and good conversation show us that the hero is also capable of intimacy, which is obviously Bingley in this case. And then a lot of Jane Austen books also have the buffoon, who provides comic relief, but in most cases he also shows the mercenary nature of marriage and the choices that women are presented with. And not all of these characters, I said, as I said, are going to be present in every book, but we are going to meet all of them again in the coming months as we read and watch more Austen stories. Uh, do you have a particular archetype that when you're reading Jane Austen, you delight in or like the most? I like specific characters in specific books, but I don't think they all fall neatly into the categories I just presented, even though I just presented them neatly in categories. Everything's more complicated than the way I actually say it. Yeah, everything has gray, but sometimes you have to explain things in black and white. It's an entry-level book. So much like Hannah said that these archetypes are present in some form in every Austen novel, I think it's really helpful for us to acknowledge that these archetypes also exist outside of Austen, but they exist in large part because of Jane Austen and specifically because of Pride and Prejudice. Because in my humble and correct opinion, you do not get most contemporary romance novels or contemporary romance films without the influence of Pride and Prejudice. Specifically, I'm thinking of the movies or the novels or the TV series where the romantic leads seemingly have nothing in common and they make a terrible first impression. You don't get those without Pride and Prejudice. You especially do not get those books or films where the male lead appears to be closed off emotionally but has his heart of stone melted by the woman. I'm going to just give you all a second to think about the dozens of those that exist. Uh, Some examples of this. I don't think you get it happen one night without Pride and Prejudice. You definitely don't get You've Got Mail without Pride and Prejudice. In fact, You've Got Mail references Pride and Prejudice quite a bit. And you do not get the recent Netflix sensation, Smutty Gossip Girl, a.k.a. Bridgerton, without Pride and Prejudice. And I know, I know that Darcy and Lizzie are not the first examples 
of this romantic dynamic in literature where seemingly they have nothing in common, but they come to see that they're best suited for one another. Beatrice and Benedict from Much Ado About Nothing have a very similar dynamic, but it is also very different. And I would argue that what Austen uniquely gives us is a Darcy type and that it is Darcy that contemporary popular culture, specifically our romance films and romance movies, are obsessed with. There are specifically books like Mr. Darcy Takes a Wife and Death Comes to Pemberley that, though they are set up to be sequels to Pride and Prejudice, they're told almost entirely from Mr. Darcy's point of view, which is not how Jane Austen uses the narrator. Her narrator is this third-person narrator that kind of skips around and is shared by a lot of the book, whereas these sequels are told almost entirely from Darcy's point of view. Bridget Jones, Austin Land, The Lizzie Bennet Diaries, they all are giving us their own take on who they think Darcy is, or they are giving us a Darcy type. But I think one consequence of this proliferation of the Darcy type, or even to a lesser degree, the Wickham type, is that we start to get carbon copies of who Darcy is, where we are copying the previous version of the character or the version of the character we most connected to, rather than going back to the source material. Uh, And this essentially starts to make in some of these more contemporary iterations of romance narratives that owe a lot to Pride and Prejudice, they kind of make Darcy a stock character, as opposed to a fully fledged three-dimensional archetype. But when we get into a little bit of our later discussion, we kind of want to tease out how some of the film and TV representations or takes on the Darcy character have essentially flattened him out. So, yeah, we want to talk about how how in this rereading, we really saw a lot of the depth of character, not just for Darcy, but for a lot of these characters. This is actually the first episode where Hannah and I are trying something new, uh, which is that we are not going to be sharing with you the same list of three-ish things. We've approached this each a little differently, looking at different themes, both related to the men of Pride and Prejudice. They share quite a bit quite a bit in common. Uh, but Hannah is going to get us going, and she's going to share with us the theme of her list, why she chose that, and then discuss two of those men that are on her list. And then I'm going to do the same. And at the end, we're going to join back together to discuss the one man we hold in common, the one man we hold closest to our hearts, Colin Firth. No, but we're going to we're going to discuss together Mr. Darcy at the end of it. Spoiler alert. So Hannah, you want to get us going? So on this reread, I was, I think in part because we decided that we wanted to talk about like three, we want to talk about three characters, three male characters. I was really thinking about what makes a good character. And I think for me, what makes a good character, an interesting character is someone who I, who I understand their motivations and who I kind of get something out of differently every time I open the story. So for me, my three most well-written characters, male characters, were Mr. Collins and Mr. Bennett, and then Mr. Darcy. And that, that may be controversial. That's just how I feel right now. Maybe on my next reread, I feel differently. That's so the you're gonna all of it. They're all me. of a sudden going to become the three worst developed characters, and you hate them now. I'm going to think Wickham is so interesting next time, and I just don't think Wickham is a very interesting character right now. Maybe that's just where I'm at in my life. 
So I'm first going to talk about Mr. Collins, who I think is one of the great comic characters in all of Jane Austen's work, if not in all of 19th century English English literature. And I think he he just totally jumps off the page as soon as we meet him. He comes in like a wrecking ball, even before we see him, actually. Like, he, he writes that letter, and we're just like, oh, yeah, I know. I know who this guy is. Um, his language is, like, hilariously pompous and formal, and he's full of self-contradiction, which I think is a, a really, like, funny and, again, well-written character trait, because he has this ostentatious humility ostentatious. and ostentatious ostentatious self-deprecation without being aware of any of his actual flaws, of which there are many. For example, when he proposes to Lizzie, and he goes on for like minutes and minutes about the importance of marriage and selecting the right partner, especially for a clergyman in, in, uh, in his position to set a good example, and he himself proposes to two women in three days. There's just no self-awareness in this person. I, I, it's, this is just a a really funny character. But I think the other side of this is there's this kind of scheming and planning that came across to me in this reread that it comes across as comedic, but I think it can tend towards the sinister. And I never really picked up on that before. That's really interesting. I hadn't, I don't even think I picked up on it on this reread. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know what it was. Maybe it was because I, usually when I watch the movie, I skip over the proposal because it's so cringy and I'm just like, I don't want to watch these people in pain. But Colin's proposal, there's a lot of meat in there. And I had kind of been skipping over that meat and I really got into it this time and I was like, oh boy, this is problematic. I mean, going into that proposal, I think that this I, this is probably open to interpretation, but I interpret his coming to Longbourn in the first place as being a kind of threatening thing to do because he knows that all these women are in a vul- vulnerable situation because of him, because he is set to inherit this estate and that they are all going to be homeless after this if Mr. Bennett dies and they're all unmarried. And that gives Mr. Collins a lot of power over these women. And when he proposes to Lizzie, he overtly discusses the death of both of her parents while proposing marriage to her. It's funny because it's like, how how do you think this is a good idea to talk about the death of someone's parents while you are proposing marriage to them? But it's also, I, I see it as being kind of sinister and kind of manipulative. Yeah, and and I also see it in his relationship with Lady Catherine, because when he talks about arranging little compliments to her beforehand so that he can please her as best he can, and that's a really funny thing to do, it's also, it shows how he is feeding into her vanity the way that she is feeding into into his vanity, this Mm -hmm. sort of symbiotic relationship. And Lizzie mentions this only, it's only one line in the book, but it, it, it kind of struck me. Lizzie mentions that he and Charlotte visit Rosings every day. And at first, Lizzie doesn't understand why all this attention is necessary until she realizes that Lady Catherine has other livings at her disposal. So Mr. Collins and also Charlotte probably are always kind of thinking about their next advancement. And so Lady Catherine is puffing up Mr. Collins' sense of self-importance, but he's also working through her to advance his own standing and ingratiating himself, again, in almost a manipulative way, that he's allowing her condescension so that he can serve her vanity, that they're in this symbiotic relationship that I see as being kind of manipulative. He seems to be a very flat kind of comic relief, and that's always how I saw him. And when he comes in, 
that's when the when the plot really starts to pick up and he is kind of another foil to Darcy. But at the times when I see the wheels turning in his head, I see something more sinister and that that makes him a very well-written character in my in my view. I think the text at the end completely supports your point as well. In Mr. Bennett's very short letter to Mr. Collins. Once oh yeah, when he Darcy says, "If engaged. I were you, I would I would stick to Mr. Darcy because he has more to give, or something like that." Yeah, exactly. Because I think Mr. Bennett sees that while while Colin's nature to be obsequious is natural to him, that who he is obsequious to, who he directs that at, is easily transferred to another person. And maybe Mr. Bennett doesn't think he's actually going to do it, but he recognizes in Collins that while his Fawning has the appearance of loyalty. If any other person, it's self-serving. Well, thank you, Suzanne. That really leads me into my next point, which is to talk about Mr. Bennett, who I think in some ways I, I had almost an opposite reaction to in this reread because I really want to like Mr. Bennett because he's really quick and he's really smart. And I think he's he's a good friend almost to Lizzie and Jane, but he has completely abdicated any leadership role in this family. Mm-hmm. And in some cases, like not even just leadership, but any participation in this family. So for example, he's very dismissive of his wife. We almost never see him even speaking to his younger daughters. He talks about his daughters to other people in the room, but he doesn't take any active participation in trying to discipline them, trying to teach them or parent them. It kind of falls to Jane and to Lizzie to teach by example and to discipline them. The father is not involved in doing that at all. He just likes to observe them and point out how ridiculous they're being. And he makes these jokes about his daughters getting married. And at no point until the end does he really acknowledge the very real precarious position that they're going to be in if they don't get married as a result of his inaction, which I think is just almost inexcusable to me that this person who I I want to like has, has created this situation for the people who he ostensibly loves. But once he's out of the picture, they're, they're going to be potentially be almost like irrevocably hurt by by his inaction. And this goes to what what I sort of introduced this point of it gives us a, a view sort of of what a gentleman supposedly is that Mr. Bennett is as Lizzie says he is a gentleman I am a gentleman's daughter Mr. Bennett is a gentleman but he doesn't enjoy company. I think he only leaves the house three times through the course of the book. He just wants to enjoy his leisure and his free time and his books and he doesn't he doesn't want other people to come into his library. He just wants to sit in that room by himself and enjoy his own, his, his leisure, I guess. But what I do like about Mr. Bennett is that he, he does kind of have this character turn around the whole Lydia and Wickham elopement thing, that there's a potential for character development. And it's left kind of ambiguous, I think, of whether there is going to be any development or not, because he, he really sees the very real consequences of how his inaction has hurt his daughters and his wife. And he looks over the entire course of his marriage and starts to reflect on his failures. And at this point is when he finally starts to discipline Kitty. And then at the end, he kind of tries to make an effort to get to know Bingley and Darcy. But then he's back to making these same these same jokes. We don't know if these reflections are ever going to change him. Uh, or if he's just going to go back to being the way it was before. And I I really feel that this is a character that I understand, especially within this own environment that he has created at Longbourn, in a way that is interesting to me to consider. Because his humor and his warmth, especially that he has for Jane and Lizzie, 
can fill a room, but at the same time, there's a total leadership vacuum. And that that empty space that could potentially be full is, is, is an interesting space, I think, to explore. And in the end, I think Mr. Bennett is kind of a tragic character, but it is... It's a tragedy of his own making. So what do you make of Jane Austen, if I'm remembering correctly, he doesn't really, she doesn't really write epilogues, but The Interpret and Prejudice basically functions as an epilogue. It gives you mm-hmm. little glimpses into where the main characters are. But what do you make of the mention of Mr. Bennett in the section where he does start to leave Longbourn, but oh, yeah. specifically yeah. to visit the Darcys at Pemberley? And it makes mention of the fact that often without informing them that he is planning to arrive. It's just an, another little joke. I mean, I do think that it's it shows growth, I guess, that his his family has expanded in a way that maybe he wasn't prepared for. And he is willing to leave his library to go and see them at their homes where he is a guest and he has to be introduced to other people. The fact of his leaving, the fact of his going to, to visit them does show some growth but it is also that same thing of like it's he's he's taking this kind of pervert not perverse but like the pleasure of seeing them is also the pleasure of of surprising them yeah he he still wants to in some ways act only at his own behest and on Mm -hmm. his own timing and in accordance with his own his own will his own convenience well you did a really good job of picking a list of three-ish things that had some sort of cogency. Mine, on the other hand, I, I've i read Pride and Prejudice a number of times. And I think, and I've, I've seen, I actually haven't seen the more than 15 minutes of the 2005 version. But I'm familiar with a lot of these interpretations of Pride and Prejudice. I love the 1995 miniseries. And I think that every time you watch a a Bride and Prejudice, or you rewatch the BBC miniseries, that kind of forms some of your impression of who these characters are. So I was kind of in, I was kind of surprised. So I came into this reading being like, if I were to marry any of these men, I would marry <laughs> Bingley. Like that is the person I would marry. And Mr. Darcy is great for Lizzie, but he is not for me. That's actually something that I think you and I like shared is that we were like, we love Darcy. He's not for me. And I know we're not talking about Darcy right now. But I found that my feelings about Bingley and Darcy dramatically shifted in this reading uh, in terms of the direction of like my feelings towards them and my intensity of them. And then there's one man who I have always loved, who I continue to love with even greater fervor. So first, I want to talk about Mr. Bingley, and my thoughts are not as super well-formed as yours are, so apologies. But the thing that struck me about Mr. Bingley is he is super genial. He is so kind. I, I think he does fit that best friend archetype really well in terms of his contrast to Darcy and that who Bingley is and his warmth and his generosity and his affable nature does actually tell us something about Darcy and tells us something about who Darcy is when the camera or the narrator is not with him. And that Bingley is in this position of being head of his household and he is taking care of Miss Bingley and she is in his home. Uh, And he, he does understand his responsibility as a brother and his kindness as a brother. But in this reading, I really felt that I encountered in Bingley this 
this love and this care for people, but without a love and care for people that didn't really have any grit to it, any foundation to it. Uh, he just seems like he is so easily blown off his mark by other people. And and that was really surprising to me in this reading. Now, Lizzie does not feel the way that I do about Bingley. She actually says at one point in the narrative that the fact that he is so willing to listen to those who he loves is a sign of his good character. But I was like, man, just like say what you want. If you want to go to another field, you are the head of this household. Go to another field. If you want to spend more time with Jane... You are the head of this household. You have, I think it says that his his father left him like a great fortune. Uh, like you are the head of this household. Like make the decision that is kind of kind of more in accordance with with what is going to make you and Jane happy. And it just this this ability to be blown off his mark by the stronger feelings of somebody else. I was like, oh, I do not think that. Bingley is the man for me. Uh, it's very clear he's the man for Jane. And and the thing that makes me feel like maybe I'm wrong in my interpretation of him is that every single person in the in the book, like he's the one person in the book that nobody has an unkind word about, which makes me feel like maybe I'm the villain. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because what I noticed is that a lot of what we know about Bingley isn't really from talking to him. It's from talking about him. Hmm. And that's something that Bingley is only like on stage, so to speak, for a few scenes. And we spend most of the time getting to know him from what Bane has to say about him and from what Darcy has to say about him and from what Fitzwilliam has to say about him. And I think that that makes me wonder whether these people are reliable narrators and if I am allowed to form my own opinion regardless of what they think. And if so, how do I go about doing that? And maybe that's an exercise I'll engage in on my next reread. Yeah. But I I, I agree with you that he does seem to be very easily manipulated. Yeah, which I, it's a good thing that he falls in love with Jane and Jane falls in love with him because he could easily be taken in by, I think, someone with a more mercenary nature. At the end of the book, though, there is an indication that he has grown in some sort of that fervency or strength of character when it says that even Bingley cannot handle being so close to Longbourn, and Uh he moves closer to Darcy because they cannot handle being that close to Jane's mother. And that endeared me to him greatly. <laughs> but it took 300 pages for me to be like, oh, okay, dude, I see you. I like you. Yeah. I think even the fact that he comes back to Netherfield, even after everyone has already convinced him that Jane hates him, or not hates him, but Jane doesn't love him, and he still decides before before he knows the truth, he still does decide to come back. And we don't know why, because again, that it happens offstage. It's a baby step, but he's willing to put in that baby step to kind of see if he can rekindle that. It, it's, it's you know, 5% endearing, I think. But you may disagree. That's your, that's your choice. Well, I think there is one man, though, that you and I do not disagree on, and that is the prince of our hearts, 
the real hero of Pride and Prejudice, a god amongst men, Colonel Fitzwilliam. If Bingley is barely in the narrative, Colonel Fitzwilliam... (laughs) He flies in like a bird before he flies immediately back out. Oh, yeah. He is, like, in and out like a flash. But, man, the impression this man makes on me. (laughs) First off, the name sounds great. Colonel Fitzwilliam. Like, isn't that just so delightful? Is there a Mrs. Colonel Fitzwilliam? There is not a Mrs. Colonel Fitzwilliam. And this is the thing. This is the thing that, like, breaks my heart, which is everyone talks about, like, Lizzie has all of these thoughts about how wonderful he is, how genial he is, how kind he is, how kind he is to his terrible, terrible aunt, how affectionate he is towards Lizzie, how much, like, kindness and attention that he pays towards her. She thinks he might be interested in her. And... She, like, thinks kind of, like, oh, that's kind of nice. He's a nice man. And then she realizes that she's not interested in him. And then he doesn't propose. And she's, like, kind of bummed because, you know, it's always nice to know that somebody is, like, interested in you. But then she's, like, it's okay. You know, he's not the guy for me. And I'm just over here being, like, why isn't he the guy for you? He likes going on nice walks. He's a gossip, which I can appreciate as a quality in man. He's, like, willing to spill all of the secrets. You can have great conversation. He's got a great career. He's got ties to wealthy people. So you And he probably has a pretty good inheritance coming from Lady Catherine de Bourgh. Like, he is the total package. And I think, I think the narrative actually says, the book actually says he's 36. Is that, am I remembering that right? Oh, I didn't remember that. I think it says that that Fitzwilliam is in his 30s. And I'm like, how has this man, how has this man been allowed to just go throughout life with no one falling madly in love with him? It is the intensity of my of my befuddlement that he is not like the catch of this book. I uh, mean, you're making a lot of assumptions that 44 other women haven't already fallen in love with him. And that he just decided that he didn't want to marry any of them. Yeah, that is true. I wonder if there has been much like Colonel Fitzwilliam fan fiction. Oh, for sure. There has to be, right? There has to be. Yeah. I mean, I guess another interpretation is like, he's gay or he's asexual. And he's like, look, I have a great job. I have a... I have a good living. I'm not gonna, I'm not doing this. I can like live on my own as a man of means in my yeah, solitude. But, there, but being in your 30s and being unmarried wasn't super uncommon. For men. For men. Yeah, obviously. Sorry. <laughs> Charlotte, if you're, if you're in your 30s, like you're, oh God, oh boy, now I'm in a pit of despair. If you're in your 30s and you're an unmarried lady, forget it. You're dead. Oh, yeah. Charlotte Lucas is 27 and it's like. Ugh. People are ready to put her out to pasture. Yeah. And Knightley in Emma, he's... Right. He's, he's an older Yeah, 35 he's 37, or, I think. Yeah. Okay. Well, but I think you agree that Fitzwilliam is a prince among men. No, I think he's super dreamy, for sure. I think I grew up with... An, like, someone said at some point in my life that Fitzwilliam and um, Georgiana are sort of intended for each other. And it, it was hard for me to shake that, even though mm-hmm. there's like 20 years difference between them, which also... We've read Emma. It's not uncommon. But he's also her godfather, which, like, creeps me out a little bit. Uh, He's her guardian. 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 Yeah. Yeah. But, again, a thing that happened. A a different time. A different... Legitimately a different time. All right. So this brings us to the spirit that has been in the room this whole time. The man who 
has inspired all of these countless film, TV, miniseries, web series reinterpretations, often considered by many to be like the king above, like among all men in Pride and Prejudice, or in all of Austin, Mr. Darcy. I feel like we should like be like welcoming him into the room. He should have entrance music like um, NFL players or boxers. So given that you know what our list of three-ish things are, Hannah's interested in the best written men. I'm interested in this kind of men who my opinion on has sort of changed or in the case of Colonel Fitzwilliam become weirdly fanatic about. You can kind of see a little bit of how we feel about Darcy. I will say that... As I mentioned, I think one of the failings of the film TV books that have been inspired by Pride and Prejudice is the way that they kind of turned the Darcy character into a stock, a stock character. Uh, And really what I saw in this reread was how much depth he had and how much warmth he had. Modern interpretations of the Darcy character, and this is something that you might be able to speak to, Hannah, because I think you noticed this with like Bridget Jones, for example, The modern Darcy-type characters are only ever really nice to the heroine. They are cold and unfeeling, and they're they're very prideful, and they're antisocial to everyone. And then it's the heroine who starts to see a different side of him. And that's kind of and then fixes him, and then fixes him, and he all of a sudden becomes likable. And I was just so surprised by. Every indication that we have that it's Lizzie's interpretation of who Darcy is that is wrong. And that behind the scenes, he is a warm, affable, kind-hearted person. But it's but his problem is, is not that he lacks any of that warmth or kindness. It's just that he is very particular about who he reveals that kindness to. And that what Lizzie brings into his life is this desire and this impetus and this need and he he understands for the first time how limiting that is and how by limiting who he expresses that warmth to he's limiting the opportunity to really have a whole range of acquaintances and family that that enrich his life and that was something that I I don't know how but I completely missed in previous readings I think the great thing about Darcy, what one of the things that makes him such a great character is that I get something different out of this man every every time. And one of the things that I I think I always thought was that he he was he was wrong, that he was always wrong. And it took Elizabeth pointing out how wrong he is about everything for him to say, Oh, okay, well, I've misjudged myself and I've misjudged all these other people. And this time I, I realized I, I was sitting there reading that, like, how can some, someone be so smart and so dumb at the same time? Like, he, <laughs> obviously the proposal scene goes horribly awry. He has woefully misjudged the situation. He has completely misunderstood this woman, but in other ways he has very well judged her. Mm-hmm. Um, when he, when they're at Netherfield, and they, they have this moment where they're kind of sparring, they're verbally sparring, and she she's pointing out his defects. And she says, your defect is a propensity to hate everyone. And he says, and yours is willfully to misunderstand them. That line hit me like a ton of bricks this time, because I was just, 
I had always read Lizzie as an angel, this perfect character. And this time when he said that, I was like, oh, that's right. She willfully misunderstands all of these, all of these people. Um, She willfully misunderstands Darcy, Darcy and Wickham, I guess, specifically. And she is not willing to hear other people's opinions about them if they don't stack up with what, what she already thinks. And um, I was, I was really interested in how right he could be and then how also wrong he could be. And then he, he really accepts her criticism in a way that leads to, I mean, very real character growth, but oh, more than I, character I mean, growth. When, he, yeah, when go on. Lizzie and Mr. and Mrs. Gardner visit Pemberley, he is so, so like kind. He is so genteel with everyone in her family. And he he does it not because he thinks that it's going to make her fall in love with him. He's he's kind of given that up, he says. Well, he says he gave it up for about 30 minutes and then he started to hope, <laughs> which is so cute. But he does it because he's trying to prove to her that he did listen to her and he wanted to change. And he does that without any expectation that she's going to love him. She right. just He just wants her to know that he took what she said to heart. And it's so endearing that that is a thing that he did, that he he wanted to make it clear to her that he is trying to be better, even though he didn't think that she would ever love him. And this is this actually touches on something that you and I talked about, which is that one of the things that sets apart Darcy from modern interpretations of Darcy is that Jane Austen allows Darcy to be wrong. But when he discovers he's wrong, how he reacts to that is is he goes internal. Like he he does lash out a little bit in the proposal when it's rejected. And in his letter, he talks about how I started off that letter pretty hot and then I had kind of calmed down by the end of it. But other than those little little moments, his reaction to disappointment, his reaction to emotional pain, his emotional to heartbreak is to go internal. He doesn't take that pain and that anger and and wage emotional terrorism on all the people around him. He takes it on as, as his responsibility. And so often what you see in contemporary romantic comedies is in contemporary romance novels is that when the male hero feels pain, he is going to lash out at everyone uh, because it is an expression of his heartbreak. And it's so, and the heroines do something similar. Lizzie also internalizes all of her feelings, but it's such a different dynamic than, than what I'm used to seeing in more contemporary interpretations of the Darcy character. Yes, they internalize it, but not in a way that's self-destructive either. Yes. That they're not just sitting around, well, we don't know what they're thinking because Austin never lets us into their minds or into their conversations, but they're internalizing in a way that is constructive and in a way that they are actually showing an effort at, at, at growing and at becoming better people and expressing themselves, in Darcy's case, expressing themselves in ways that makes them seem more uh, compatible with how they see themselves in opposition to what Wickham does, which is to blame everybody else for all his problems, to externalize his problems. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure we could continue this discussion about Darcy. We could just do a whole episode about Darcy. Oh, yeah. Um, and if you'd like to hear that, please let us know. <laughs> but I think, I mean, just out of out of our discussion and out of reading it again and thinking about it again and just talking about it, 
I feel like I've learned so much about about these characters and about myself and about I don't know just the kinds of things that I I I value in other people and the things that I value in the I guess the content that I'm consuming and I would really encourage people if they're interested to to take another peek at this book and see if you if you're getting anything else out of it. This is the time where we beseech good Austin word. Uh, also, Hannah, I don't feel like my pointing out you said you called Mr. Collins ostentatious, and I don't think you properly acknowledged. Oh, my, I didn't even notice. You I didn't, didn't even, even notice. You called him ostentatious. Ugh, I'm such, so sorry. No, I didn't even notice. Uh, such a missed opportunity. But this is your opportunity to let us know. Speaking of opportunity, this is your opportunity to let us know what you think, both of our opinions, unless you disagree with us about. Colonel Fitzwilliam, uh, do you think that there is a character that has better ca- uh, character development? Do you actually think Wickham is totally misunderstood and is the real hero of this story? You can get involved in the discussion by tweeting at us at at wellherepod or commenting on this episode's post on Instagram. Also, wellherepod. Or to even give you more options, you can email us at wellherepod at gmail.com. Dot com. Don't forget to go to wherever you get your podcasts and click that I most ardently admire and love you button, which you might know as a subscribe button. Until next time, I'm Suzanne, and I really do think a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. And I'm Hannah, and I do send my compliments to your mother. And well, here we are. Make it evergreen, oh, ever. Fuck. Uh-huh.